When we disobey God, it is because we think that the grass will be greener on the other side. We, we think we know what is best for us and we doubt that God has something better. And so we fall into sin. What we fail to realize is that God indeed has our best interest at heart. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're gonna be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are gonna encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. Before we get into it, uh, I'd like to just bow, bow for a word of prayer, bow my head with a word of prayer and to, to begin. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the gift of life. Lord, I pray that you would be with us here tonight, that you would pour your Holy Spirit out. Um, I pray that the gospel is preached tonight to my heart and to the hearts that are here. Open our ears, our eyes, and our hearts to you tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So um, I was um, given the um, first uh, sermon, uh, sermon of the series, and it actually takes place in the book of Genesis. And I was given uh, Genesis chapter 3. Now, I like to assume that no one knows what the Bible, like, much about the Bible. I don't like to assume that you know every single thing, because I know I don't. And so I'd like to give some context and some background to Genesis chapter 3, right before we dive in. So uh, we're going to be looking at the story of the fall of man. And um, it's interesting, in the book of Revelation, which is actually the last book of the Bible, um, Revelation chapter 12, to be specific, it talks about this war in heaven. And the Bible says that war broke out in heaven. And it talks about this war between an evil power and a good power, God and this figure called Lucifer or Satan. And in heaven, it wasn't necessarily a war of physicality, of punching and kicking and shooting of what we would typically think of war. It was a war of words, accusations, um, challenging people's characters. And all the while that's happening, um, God has this idea of creating earth and humanity. Um, This is happening at the same time prior to to humanity being created. And so that takes us to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Now, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are pre-fall. Genesis chapter 3 is the fall of humanity. And everything after that is post-fall or post-sin. And uh, Genesis chapter 1 can be summed up in this. Six days of creation. God creates life. He creates animals. He creates birds. He creates, on the sixth day, he creates human beings, male and female. Chapter two starts off with the um, creation of the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. And then the rest of chapter two is more detail about the creation of man and woman, okay? And that takes us to chapter three. 
Now, with this background to the story of this cosmic conflict between God and Satan, which now involves us, have you ever wondered questions like, who is God really? Is he good, having my best interest at heart? Or is God a self-centered tyrant, wanting to hide good things from me? Today, we will look at this story in Genesis to see if God really is who he says he is. Let's begin in, in Genesis chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, we're actually going to be spending a lot of time in it today. Genesis chapter 3. If you got them, pull out your phones, whatever you got. Genesis chapter 3, and I think they might be able to put it up on the screen. If not, no big deal. It's all good. Genesis chapter 3. So we're going to break down this passage. And the first section of Genesis chapter 3, I like to sum up in I call it the accusation, okay? The accusation against God. So let's take a look at verse one. Verse one says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Verse one, we have the serpent asking the question to the woman. Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? There's two key words in this text that should stand out to you. Does anybody have any ideas what those two words are? You can just draw any words, doesn't matter. Actually, that's a good one, yes. That's the first one. And the second one? Did someone? Any. Someone said any. So two words are actually and any, okay? So... The first word actually indicates questioning. Satan is creating a basis of doubt in the woman. The second crucial word to pay attention to in the text is any. In order to understand what the serpent is actually saying, we need to compare this to the command that God actually gave Adam and Eve before the serpent was involved. So in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, we can read the command. If, if we can go there, you can jump in your Bibles there. Um, it says in verse 16, chapter 2, verse 16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall not, you, you, may surely, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. What is the key word in this text in comparison? Every. That's right, Christina, Every. In chapter 2, we see God saying that you can eat of every tree, just not this one, versus what the serpent says in, in verse 1 in chapter 3, that you can't, he says, you can't eat of any tree in the garden. The emphasis in God's command is on what you can do. But the serpent spins it in a way that makes, makes it seem like God is extremely restrictive. You guys see what I'm saying there? Let me give you an example of this, okay? So I love to surf. How many of you guys like surfing out there? Woo! No, nobody? Okay, <laughs> nobody. All right, just me. I know there's a few out there. Don't sleep on it. Okay, so I, I own about six or seven surfboards, okay? Um, I haven't bought that many, but I've inherited donations from people, okay, through my years of school and stuff. And um, I'm usually pretty open about sharing my boards with people. I have a, a soft top board, which is for beginners. I have some short boards, which is more experience. And so the shorter the board and the thinner the board, the harder it is to ride. Because you're not really going to catch waves, especially as a beginner, on a short, thin board because it's not as buoyant. Okay? So 
let me give you an example of this, right? If I have a friend that comes to me and says, hey, can I borrow a board? And he's a beginner. And I say, dude, you can use any board you want. Just don't take the short board. Trust me, you're not going to catch any waves. And versus if I say to him, uh, yeah, you can't really have any of the boards. You can't use any of the boards. Which one sounds more restrictive? You can't have any, right? The second one. This, uh, this is the first accusation the serpent is trying to convince Eve of, that God is extremely restrictive. Now, restrictions are not always bad. In fact, God does have restrictions in order to protect us. The argument Satan is making isn't that God is just restrictive, but that he is extremely restrictive. Why does this matter? This matters because when people often create restrictions, it can either be to protect or to control. Protection is not a bad thing, but control always is bad. One is focused on preserving others. The latter is focused on self-preservation. When someone is unnecessarily restrictive, it brings into question their motives and their character. What Satan is doing here is painting God to be a tyrant. This is not what chapter 2 teaches, though. It shows that God, rather than, rather than being unnecessarily restrictive, it paints a picture that God is restrictive only when it benefits you. Do you see the difference there? Now, notice how the woman responds in verse 3 when she responds to the serpent. This is Genesis chapter 3, verse 3. But God said, you shall not eat of, this is her response. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, touch it, lest you die. The word for lest in the Hebrew is um, pen. I'm probably saying it wrong. I'm not a pastor. Didn't study Hebrew and Greek. So no shame in that. I'm probably saying it wrong. But the word is P-E-N, okay, in the, in the Hebrew. Um, so that word in the Hebrew can also be translated as perhaps or might. Eve says that she might die versus what God says, that you will surely die. Her response indicates that she isn't even sure if that is the case anymore. We already see in the response of Eve that she is starting to doubt if God really is who he says he is. Look at verse 4. This is the serpent's response. It says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. The, ser the serpent jumps on this and reaffirms what Eve is doubting and just outright lies and says, you will not surely die. This is the second accusation from the serpent. He is calling God a liar, calling into question God's word. He is telling Eve, God isn't just extremely restricting, but he lies about it. Why do people lie? They lie to hide something. You can begin to see the picture that Satan is painting of God. These lies are setting Satan up to tell the ultimate accusation against the goodness of God. Let's look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this. This is the continuation of Satan speaking to um, um, Eve. For God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
It says in the text that God knows that if you do this, then you will be like him. The emphasis in the text isn't even the content of the knowledge. The emphasis is rather on the fact that God is withholding something beneficial from Eve that he wants to keep for himself. You see how all the accusations are set up for this main accusation right here? Satan is saying God is restricting and lying because he is trying to keep something good from you. Satan is making accusations that go against everything that Adam and Eve have already experienced. Look at this, right? Genesis chapter one and two. God creates a perfect world, gives it to Adam and Eve. God creates the perfect garden home for them. God creates the perfect companion for each other. God creates the perfect job for them. God gave Adam and Eve the best. It was perfect. Satan makes the claim that God is a withholder when all we have seen him do in the first two chapters is give, give, and give some more. Nonetheless, these accusations are all setting up Eve to believe the ultimate accusation about God, that he is a withholder of good things. So what does Eve do? She believes the lies, and that leads her and, her and Adam to choose a life without God. Look at verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6. It says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Eve decided that what was going to, that, that she was going to look out for herself without God. She gave the fruit to Adam, and he made the same exact decision. They basically said, step aside, God. I don't need you. I know what I want. Sin is not an abstract concept and is more than just a bunch of rules. Sin is a breach in a relationship with God and others. I mean, think about it. The first sin on earth was eating a fruit. If you look at it on paper, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But it was much bigger than that. In that moment, Adam and Eve chose themselves over God. They chose to live the life they, they, would, they thought would be best, a life without him. It showed that they didn't trust in the goodness of God. At that point, they took their lives out of God's hands and put it in their own hands. How often do we do this? If it was you or me at, at the tree, I'm convinced we likely would have done the same thing. Think about it. When we disobey God, it is because we think that the grass will be greener on the other side. We, we think we know what is best for us, and we doubt that God has something better. And so we fall into sin. What we fail to realize is that God indeed has our best interest at heart. I mean, look at the consequences of sin in the story. Let's compare, we're going to compare chapter 2, verse 25. So if we can pull that up. 
um, with chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. We're going to compare the two, pre-sin, post-sin. Verse 25 says this, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not what? Ashamed. So 2.25 says that pre-fall Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. I was talking to one of my uh, mentors earlier this week. I was texting her. She's a licensed therapist, and she deals a lot with shame and guilt. A lot of her um, um, patients and things like that have deal with guilt and shame. And so I asked her to kind of give me some information, talk to me about this. And she said, she said something interesting. She said, we often use guilt and shame, those words, we use them wrongfully, interchangeably. We think that they're the same thing. And so we use them interchangeably. And, th- and that's just really not definitionally, definitionally the case. So I got this example from her. She said this, shame is a message from Satan that we ourselves are permanently defined by what we have done so that not even the blood of Jesus is enough to cleanse us, okay? An illustration that she showed me was this. Imagine that this was a jacket, right? A big puffy jacket, right? And, and um, Satan comes up to you and he puts on the jacket and he zips it up and he says, you can never take this off. Your mistakes are who you are. You are what you've done. Does that make sense? That is shame. Something you feel like you can never shake, humiliation. Guilt is the realization that you've done something that separates you from God. And God wants to remove it so that we can be close again. An illustration would be like you wearing this big puffy jacket, right? And it's zipped up. And God sees you and says, let me take that thing off so I can give you a big hug. Do you see the difference between guilt and shame? Guilt makes us long to be close to God and experience cleansing. But shame makes us want to stay away from anything holy because we feel so dirty. Before sin, there was no shame. Adam and Eve were fully known by God and fully loved by him too. The difference between pre and post sin was that before they knew they were loved by God, but after sin, they questioned it. When we read verses 3, chapter 3, 7 through 11, we see a shift in how they view themselves. Let's read verses 7 through 11 really quickly. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I have heard the sound of you in the garden. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? No longer do Adam and Eve feel comfortable being fully known. They are ashamed of their nakedness, so much so that they run from God and hide from him. Now get this, notice this, okay? This is, this is a big point. The shift in shame had nothing to do with, what, with God, but everything to do with Adam and Eve. I'll say that again. The shift in how they viewed themselves 
had nothing to do with God, but everything to do with Adam and Eve. God never told them that they were naked. He didn't say, why are you naked? But who told you you were naked? Who ran from who in the story? They ran from God while God was looking for them. You see, a life without God is a life where we cycle through shame, feeling like we are not valuable anymore, that we are too messed up to be loved, feeling like we have to hide who we are from God because he would be disgusted with us. This is completely not the case with God. But without him, we continue to struggle with this issue with identity. What else does sin lead to? Sin leads to broken relationships. In chapter two, pre-sin, God puts Adam to sleep, okay? This is chapter two, pre-sin. He puts Adam to sleep, and he takes out one of the ribs from Adam while he's sleeping because he wants to make a companion for Adam. And he forms Eve out of the dust of the ground. And, he, and Eve is awake, and she's walking around. And then Adam wakes up. And then he sees Eve, okay? And this is what he says. Check this out. It's a super romantic, by the way. So all you uh, hopeless romantics or whatever you call it, listen to this. <laughs> he says in chapter 2, verse 23, he says, Then man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she has t- was taken out of man. Look at the way Adam speaks of his lady. <laughs> it's a beautiful love story. He sees her as one with him. So I was thinking about this story, and I'm not married, um, and so I had to call one of my friends up that is married, and uh, I, uh, I asked him. He got married like two months ago. His name's John Wynn. Um, and I said, I said, hey, John, what did, you, what did you feel, what did you see when you had that first look with your wife on that wedding day? And he said that he saw a beautiful woman that he was going to spend the rest of his life with. And the most exciting thing for him was that they were, that day, they were going to become one flesh and they had the rest of their lives together. How beautiful is that? This is what Adam is doing in the situation. Chapter two, he wakes up. It's that first look on the wedding day. You're looking into the eyes of the woman or the man that you're going to spend the rest of your life with. Now, compare that. (laughs) Compare that with chapter 3, verse 12, after sin. Totally different dude, okay? Listen to this. Listen to this. Chapter chapter 3, verse 12. Listen, this is comical. Listen to this. This guy says, this is what Adam says. He says, the man said, the woman whom you gave me gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Poor Eve, man. Poor Eve. Adam literally goes from Mr. Romantic, flesh of my flesh, Mr. Poet, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, to the woman you gave me. (laughs) I mean, seriously, Adam, like, come on, man. Like, I can only imagine how the car, if they had cars back then, I can only imagine how the car ride home went for Adam. Oh, man. If there was a couch, Adam probably would have been sleeping on it, you know? (laughs) 
I'm just kidding. No couches, no couches, no couches. Um, no, but seriously, right? Sin leads to broken relationships. I don't even need to pull out statistics to show you this. Look at how many broken marriages there are out there. All of us in here probably know someone in our family or friend group that has come from a home that has a divorced home or whatever it is, right? Look at how much relational trauma there is out there. A life without God is not better. It's more challenging. When we begin to believe the lie that God withholds the good things from us, we begin to disobey him, which leads us into more pain and suffering as a result of our own actions. Now, is the accusation that God is a divine withholder true? Let's look at the last section of the story. This last section is God talking to the serpent, to Eve and then to Adam. When he addresses the serpent, we're going to focus mostly on the, on the, the words of the serpent here. When he addresses the serpent, he says something interesting. He says in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That word for bruise can also be translated as crush. So he, and he shall, um, you shall bruise his heel and he shall crush your head. Notice he says, I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. He's referring to the serpent and Eve in the situation. Offspring can refer to multiple people or to a singular person, right? So someone in the future that comes from Eve is going to put enmity between the serpent, which represents the devil, and humanity. We know that this is a singular person because the text uses he after, right after, it says offspring, which is singular. So we know that there will be a man in between humanity and the devil. It then describes this man as someone whose heel would be bruised by the serpent, but in the end, the man would crush the serpent's head. This is a foretelling. This is the first me mention of the gospel. This is a foretelling of the Savior, Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says this. This is talking about Jesus. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, being Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. This describes Jesus coming and destroying the devil. There are many other texts that allude to this. The SDA Bible commentary says this regarding Genesis chapter 3, this conversation between God and the serpent. It says this, These observations clearly show that in this pronouncement is compressed the record of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. A battle that began in heaven was continued on earth where Christ again defeated him and will terminate finally with Satan's destruction at the end. Christ did not emerge from the battle unscathed. The nail marks in his hands and feet and the scar on his side will be eternal reminders of the fierce strife in which the serpent bruised the woman's seed. The accusations about God are absolutely not true. God is not a withholder. He is a generous giver. 
what is the ultimate gift someone can give you? What is the ultimate gift someone can give you? It is themselves. Not just part of them, but all of them. Let me explain to you what I mean. Okay, let me give you an example of this. I was thinking back at my like, childhood and my life. How many of you guys, I'm a 90s baby. How many 90s babies out there? That's right, okay, most of you guys, nice. Um, so those of us who were born in the 90s, we were like little kids when 9-11 happened, right? And I don't, I don't remember a ton about it, but I remember it happening. I don't remember really internalizing what it really meant, you know, the, the full weight of it. Um, and it's interesting because after 9-11, the United States began a war, the war on terrorism in the Middle East. And that actually went all the way into 2011 of December, December 2011. And I remember growing up, and um, one of my friends, his name was Jalfred. And Jalfred, his older brother, was in the military, and so he always wanted to be in the military. As soon as he turned 18, he wanted to be out serving the country. And uh, I remember asking, why do you want to do it? And... He told me, he said, I just want to serve my country. I want to serve my country. It's my duty. And I remember asking him, like, man, like, don't you just want to go to college? Don't you want to, you know, like, just live a normal life? Or, you know, it's risky, man. Like, you could die. I remember asking him this stuff. In fact, I, at sometimes I begged him not to join the military just because it's scary. It's scary thinking about it. And um, December of... Uh, my, my buddy Jalford, he went to war, and he caught the tail end of the war because we, we were, um, I was still a teenager around that time, 2011, and um, I remember, I'll never forget it, it was actually the last couple months before they actually removed everybody and called it done. Um, I got a phone call from my friend Chris, and Chris told me that Jalford had died, and um, I'll never forget it, uh, that December, the same December that they, they ended the war, um, me and my friends drove up to Washington, D.C. to bury um, our brother, you know? And uh, the war became, all that stuff that I didn't really, really feel as much anymore became real to me. And I began to realize how much Jalfred sacrificed for this country. I began to realize that Jalfred gave everything for this country. He gave his life. He had a mom. He had a girlfriend. He gave up everything just so that, you know, and you can, you know, everyone has different opinions on the war and why we were there and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, he had a duty. He served, and he, and he died. He gave it all. What uh, more could, could uh, Jalford have given, and what more could God give? This is true of God as well. God is so much, so much of a giver that he gives us all of himself, including his life. This is the greatest evidence to counter Satan's claim that God withholds good things from us. God himself came down to earth in the form of a man and bore the sins of the world and died the death that we deserve so that we could live the life he deserves. This shows that God is the greatest giver there ever was. Amen. I want to I read this quote to you from, it's from a book called Desire of Ages. 
And um, someone by the name of Ellen White, who actually is one of the founders of the Adventist Church, she wrote this, um, this paragraph. And this paragraph is taken from, I think it's, uh, I forgot the chapter, but it's the 13th to last chapter, I think, in the, in the book. And it's, <laughs> sorry, it's a lot of chapters. Uh, but um, this chapter takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's where Jesus is about to, about to give his life. And this is what she says. Listen to this. The awful moment had come. That moment which was to decide the destiny of the world. The fate of humanity trembled in the balance. Christ might even now refuse to drink the cup apportioned to guilty men. It was not yet too late. He might wipe the bloody sweat from his brow and leave man to perish in his iniquity. He might say, let the transgressor receive the penalty of his sin and I will go back to my father. Will the son of God drink the bitter cup of humiliation and agony? Will the innocent suffer the consequences of the curse of sin to save the guilty? But now the history of the human race comes up before the world's redeemer. He sees that the transgressors of the law, if left to themselves, must perish. He sees the helplessness of man. He sees the power of sin, the woes and lamentations of a doomed world rise before him. He beholds its impending fate and his decision is made. He will save man at any cost to himself. There is nothing good that God is willing to hold from you, not even himself. I heard one of my old teachers tell this story. I texted him today and asked him if I could share it. His name is, um, his name is Ty Gibson. And uh, he tells this story of when he was a kid. Um, he wasn't always called Ty Gibson. When he was, a, when he was um, younger, his name was Ty Ross. And um, he grew up um, in a uh, unique home. Um, and when he would go to school, they would, you know, when they would do roll call, they would call Ty Ross. And Ty says that that name was uncomfortable for him. And the reason it was uncomfortable for him was because of what it was associated with. It was associated with, with his home life. So that last name was the name of his father, his father's last name. His father was cool in a lot of ways. He taught him how to serve, how to do other things, he says. But his, fa his father also had a drinking problem. And oftentimes, he says that his fa father would throw things, and sometimes he would throw fists and, um, at Ty and his mom. But Ty says something changed when he got to the third grade. He said that his mom sat him down, and she said, Ty, this man who you thought was your father is not your real father. Let me tell you who your real father is. And she described his name. He said his name was Gibson. His last name was Gibson. He never touched me like this. He never beat me like this. He was kind. He was gentle. He was selfless. Ty says that this shift was helpful for him. And from that point forward, he called himself Ty Gibson. He found out who his father really was, and that he was a good man. Just like Ty, sometimes our picture of who we think our Heavenly Father is 
may not actually be true. What has your picture of God been? I know some of us have had challenging experiences in life that have shaped us. We've been raised by families and churches and religious leaders that have molded our view of God. Some of the views have been good, but some not so good. I want to challenge you today not to allow others to define God, but allow his word to show you who he is. We have seen today, and we can see throughout all of Scripture, this idea that God is good and that he gives everything up for humanity, even himself, as seen in the life of Jesus. This shift in understanding who God is changes everything. It changes the way we see the laws of God. Instead of being restrictive, we see the law as beneficial. It changes the way we see ourselves. We see our value in God. It changes our relationship dynamic with God. Rather than being afraid, we find comfort in him. Instead of running away from God, we run towards him. We no longer have to live under the lies of the devil, believing that God is a tyrant, but we can live in freedom knowing that God loves us and has our best interests in mind. This is the God I want to serve. This is the God I get excited to know. And this is the God I give my life to. How about you? How about you tonight? That is the question I want to leave with you. How about you? God. Who are you really? God is good. Honestly, I can stand up here today and I will tell you, I gave my life to God when I was about 19 years old. Actually, pretty, pretty soon after um, my friend had passed, I was going through um, just, you know, early adult life questions, digging deeper. And I'll honestly stand up before you today and say that there is nothing better. There is nothing better than God. Nothing better in this world. You can accomplish whatever you want. You can get whatever you want. But you have not experienced the goodness and the best thing that this world has to offer, and that is Jesus. So how about you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for life. Thank you, God, that you are good despite our mistakes. God, I want to pray a special prayer tonight for my heart and the hearts that are here today. All of us have been molded by our surroundings and by the churches and the families and the experiences we've had. And sometimes our view of you is, is not right. But God, tonight we've learned that you are good and you give good things to your children, such as yourself, Jesus Christ. And so tonight, God, I ask for your Holy Spirit to be poured out in this place that we may see who you really are. We love you, God, and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there. On a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment, it makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.